It is 8 after the hour. I'm Eric Erickson. This is Atlanta's Evening News at our new time. The phone number is 404-872-0750-1800. WSB Talk. Let me bring you guys up to speed on on, uh, just a host of issues Uh, up front. I'm going to shift around the order a little bit from where I was going to go. I'll get to the president being on the border here in just a minute. But there is some news circulating out of Washington that President Trump and his senior advisors are quietly beginning to vet people for a Supreme Court seat. Uh, There is growing concern in Washington about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her health. Uh, Her friends say publicly that she is recuperating. She had the lower lobe of one of her lungs removed, basically half of her lung removed, because two nodules were found in her lungs. Now, I have to say, just just personally, uh, I think you guys know if you're a regular listener to this program, my wife has lung cancer, and she has had nodules removed, uh, has never had to have a a half of her lung removed, uh, particularly because of two nodules. Nodules versus mass uh, is terminology. Nodules tend to be less than three centimeters. Masses tend to be larger than three centimeters. So for two nodules to be removed, necessitating the removal of the lung lobe, is uh, raising some concern. She has not been on the bench a lung surgery by the way is super brutal uh christie's had a couple of nodules removed from her lungs and a lung biopsy and was a very 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 brutal recovery on top of that if you'll recall ruth bader ginsburg has broken ribs from a fall she sustained several months ago so it's got to be an awful surgery but the white house and people around the supreme court all are beginning to whisper that she may be retiring sooner than she would like. And so they are beginning to vet potential nominees for the Supreme Court. The question, of course, will be a very important question. Who would want the job after the Kavanaugh hearing, knowing what they will be going through, knowing what their family will be put through, Who on earth would want that job? The president has told people in the past uh, that he did not want to nominate a woman for Anthony Kennedy's seat because the president has been absolutely convinced that he would have an opportunity to replace uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and wanted to save a female nominee for that position. Amy uh, Colney Barrett is the name that keeps surfacing, whether or not she would want it, whether or not the president would even pick her is another deal. And I, I, I I feel a little seedy even talking about this right now, because uh, Justice Ginsburg is still on the court uh, and is publicly being um, being uh, she's publicly is recuperating. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting a text message actually from a friend I've been texting with on this issue who knows what's going on. Let me let me see. Can I read part of this? Um, yes, a uh, situation from a friend who would know what this is, is that the, the situation is not as good as it is publicly being conveyed. Lots of unknowns. White House team vetting cautiously. We will see. That's that's all I'm being told. Now, uh, what I am also being told in Washington directly from White House sources is that there is pressure afoot in the White House to get the president to declare a national emergency for the border wall as a way to end the shutdown. Essentially, the people I'm talking to are acknowledging that if the president were to declare a a national emergency, he would reopen the government with the Democrats and then would declare the national emergency 
and then expect that a federal judge would issue an injunction prohibiting him from doing anything on the emergency while it was vetted for consideration of whether or not there actually was an emergency. A federal judge, if they wanted to do this, absolutely would do this. Um, I don't think that a national emergency is a good idea. I don't think so for a number of reasons. Most importantly, and this is uh, the White House Counsel's Office, shares this opinion uh, that it would set dangerous precedent for a future president. If Donald Trump declared a national emergency over the border wall, it would be very, very, very easy for a future Democratic president to declare a national emergency over climate change. They, unlike the president of the United States currently, that future Democratic president would already have a declaration from the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Pentagon strategic team that climate change is a national security issue. The president does not have a statement from the Pentagon that illegal immigration is a national security issue. So by doing this, it would lay the groundwork for a future Democratic president and make it easier for them to say the precedent was set by this president for declarations of emergency as such. And oh, by the way, mine is more legitimate because the Joint Chiefs of Staff have said climate change is a national security issue, uh, giving rise to the need for a national emergency. The White House Counsel's Office very, very adamant against the president doing this. Um, and it's not just the White House Counsel's Office. There are plenty of others inside the White House who are telling him that if he does this, he will not get the wall and he will be laying the groundwork for bad things later from a future Democratic president. To the Trump supporters who are saying, well, they're going to do this anyway, I am old enough to remember when Democrats were telling Senate Democrats, go on and get rid of the entire filibuster because the Republicans are going to. And they never actually did what people told them Republicans would do. And now the Republicans are being told, you know, the Democrats will get rid of the legislative filibuster. And there's no sign that they will. There isn't support within the within the Senate Democrats. So I would be very cautious about taking present action based on future hypotheticals. And the White House Counsel's Office, again, also advising the president this would be a terrible idea to do this national emergency. But the state of play on the national emergency and how it would play out is interesting. So there's another angle here that's worth talking about. I have told you that there is some concern within the White House and outside groups that congressional Republicans could potentially cave on the wall and hand the Democrats a win. Essentially, the Democrats are banking on the fact that uh, there's a growing movement of Republicans in the House and the Senate who would vote to override a presidential veto if they can get it to the floor. Now, Mitch McConnell today has blocked the Democrats' uh, reopening plan from getting to the floor of the Senate. But the Democrats are convinced they can pick up a number of Republicans in the in the uh, House to help them override a president's veto. You got to remember this is this is a really important issue here. A number of Republicans who opposed the president got beat, but a lot of Republicans who don't like the president are still there, and they wouldn't mind humiliating the president. Some of them because they're still licking their wounds for over the election. They also are still very embittered by the president calling out various Republicans. So. The Democrats hope they can get these people if there's enough pressure built by federal employees who aren't getting paychecks and the news stories related there too to override a presidential veto and reopen the government without doing anything. What's being missed in all of this, though, 
is that freshman Democrats are themselves being blasted by constituents. Many of them actually took over in Republican areas that are still somewhat partial to the president's policies, even if they don't like the president. And the freshman Democrats are a little bit quaking, wondering why they shouldn't give the president money. I mean, for God's sakes, people, Cher, the entertainer Cher, has come out blasting the president for hijacking the government and then calling on Nancy Pelosi to please give him what he wants to get the government reopened. Share when you got Hollywood celebrities blasting the president, but saying we, we got to negotiate with this guy. It seems to me that there is pressure to be brought to bear on the Democratic side. The president has gone down to Texas today along the border to show that the border is not secure, to show that there needs to be uh, an extent, an extension of the wall. Jim Acosta did a, an own goal today walking along the border fence saying, doesn't look like there's an illegal immigration crisis here. Well, he was standing in front of the border wall that keeps people out. So, of course, there wasn't a crisis. The Trump administration quickly circulated the Acosta clip and said, see, even Jim Acosta says a border wall keeps us secure. It was a very, very, I, I Acosta was trying, trying to, to own the president and, I mean, got his lunch eaten by himself in what he did. It was a ridiculous stunt by Acosta that proved the president's point, the White House pushing it out today. Uh, we may hear from the president later along the border as he's down there campaigning. Um, the White House really, really right now telling me on one side to keep up the pressure against the emergency declaration because they think a federal judge would stop it and so the president would get nothing. On the other side, telling me the president is very committed to keeping the shutdown going until he gets something, and we may have to drag this on and make it more painful for people so the Democrats understand he's not joking. The Democrats right now are convinced that if it gets more painful, either Republicans will cave or the president will cave. The president is going to have to show he's not going to be the one to blink at the game of chicken with the Democrats. I'm increasingly uncomfortable with the level of information that various companies can get from you uh, by just your web traffic, uh, whether it's social media companies, whether it's your internet service provider or what have you. You know, if, for example, my mother-in-law tells the story, she was flying back from California, she ordered a cheese plate on the flight from Los Angeles back to Atlanta. And now on Facebook, she sees these ads all the time from the cheese manufacturer that made the cheese plate that she bought on the airplane. It really creeped her out. The best way to get around being tracked by social media sites, marketing companies, your mobile and internet provider is to get a secure VPN. And you can take your privacy back by using ExpressVPN. It's easy to use apps. They integrate seamlessly in the background of your computer, your phone, your tablet. Turning on ExpressVPN protection only takes a click. It secures and makes anonymous your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Makes it safe to go online without everybody snooping. So to protect your online privacy today, your online activity online, find out how you can get three months for free at expressvpn.com slash Eric. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash Eric, E-R-I-C-K, for three months free with a one-year package. Go to expressvpn.com slash Eric to learn more. It is 25 after the hour. Phone lines are open, 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Brian Kemp is on his tour of the state of Georgia. Um, 
going across the state, having some events uh, in South Georgia, Middle Georgia, North Georgia, largely avoiding the metro Atlanta area. Democrats, of course, are grumbling, but the Kemp team, I think, wisely points out that these are the areas that handed Kemp his victory. He's going through to thank them. Uh, we are going to see a never-ending campaign from Democrats. Um, it, it's it's one of the things how you process internally elections. For example, uh, Republicans in the state legislature in Georgia have processed the November midterms as the suburbs don't like us anymore. If we want to hold on to power, rural Georgia is going to keep voting Republican. We got to suck up to the suburbs. So they're going to ignore rural Georgia issues. They're going to ignore social conservative issues, and they're going to do what they can to show suburban voters who hate Donald Trump that the GOP is responsible and likable. They want to be liked. The Democrats have processed the midterm election as if we just fight and 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 don't stop fighting and fight some more, then we'll eventually wear people down and they'll vote for us. It's how they think they beat Trump, except they didn't. Um, they, they didn't beat Trump. He wasn't on the ballot, but Democrats are eyeing Georgia in 2020. Look, I, I gotta tell you, um, this is my, my shout out for a dear friend of mine, uh, Drew Ryan. He owns a company called campaign sidekick. Uh, the Kip campaign used them very effectively for ground game around the state. I I'm really, I've been pushing the Purdue people to hire Drew, not because he's a friend of mine, but because I know his, his campaign technology, essentially can pull up a map of an area, tell you whether someone is a hardcore Republican or Democrat or undecided, uh, what their core issues are, and, and do a walk map. So you can go knock on people's doors, and it keeps track of how many times people have been uh, visited, whether they've been visited, if they haven't been home, if they told you go away, I'm with the other guy. Built a very accurate database. So we as Republicans, and I, I do consider myself a Republican still, I was an elected one, I, I think we've got to invest in some permanent on-the-ground responses and can't rely on volunteers. Increasingly across the nation, it is harder and harder for political campaigns to get volunteers to focus long enough to be of any good. Uh, it takes paid staff on the ground knocking on doors. And I think the state of Georgia, the Republicans are not going to be able to rely on outside groups. They're not going to be able to rely on uh, the RNC, the RGA, or others. They're going to have to do it themselves. Uh, it is a wise thing for Brian Kemp to go around the parts of the state where he won and thank the voters. It is a wise thing for the state party to focus on paid operatives in the suburbs, trying to get uh, find the Republican voters in the suburbs, make sure they turn out to vote. And also, I continue to believe that Republicans in Georgia have got to figure out a way to build a coalition with Hispanic voters. When you look at the margin that Brian Kemp got with Hispanic voters, when you look at the Republican statewide margin with Hispanic voters, it was like 38 to 40 percent. That's really actually not bad. And Hispanic voters aren't a huge voting block. Uh, there are a lot more Hispanic voters in the state than actually vote. You add to your numbers there, it's actually a really good thing. 
if we can get the Republicans to figure out how to do that, to invest in that, you don't have to pander to them. It's one of the problems with like Christian film. There was a great article the other day in how Christian movies are so terrible uh, because so many people pander. Same thing with this. Uh, you got to go out and, and connect with these people in their neighborhoods, build relationships with them, but the state parties can't rely on volunteers. And in fact, the Democrats in Georgia have figured that out. When we come back, Michael Cohen is going to testify to the Senate. It is 38 after the hour. It's Eric Erickson here. The phone number 404-872-0750-1800. WSB Talk. Uh, I want to go to the phones now. Let's go first to James in Auburn. Welcome. Hey, Eric. Hi there. Uh, uh, okay, my question is real quick. What if Trump asked for all the border security funding stuff that he's been asking for, uh, fencing, uh, not kind of fencing, like all the uh, you know refugee changes, detention, all that stuff, get that up front. Then once he gets it all up front, then go back and you know hammer them on the on the wall funding. You know, I think that's an option, although talking to a couple of people who have floated something very similar, their their understanding is that the president could probably get that stuff, but the Democrats will never give him wall funding, and he has made the wall such a central part of his campaign for being president that he fears his base would react negatively if he was able to get all of that stuff and not get funding for the wall. And I, I understand that, but at the same time, if the president is able to boost Border Patrol— and boost uh, customs and immigration enforcement when the Democrats want to get rid of that organization altogether and uh, boost beds for asylum seekers uh, to be able to contain uh, those people. Maybe that's the compromise to float ultimately. Uh, Marco Rubio is actually out right now. Uh, He's picking up from a tweet that I tweeted out the other day that, uh, as I told you guys the other day when I did it, that if the president declares an emergency for the border, it's only a matter of time before the Democrats declare one on climate change and start reallocating money to seize coal plants and whatnot, it would be very problematic. Marco Rubio is out now saying that the the DACA deal that the Democrats were willing to go along with back in February, excuse me, February is so far gone that it would be almost impossible for both sides to agree to it now, that essentially they're their digging in their heels has become impediments, have become walls of sorts that they have to get past, and the DACA deal probably won't cut it. Uh, but it's clear people have been looking for a deal. Lindsey Graham came out earlier today and said that there's no more deals to be had. They're going to have to wait for this to get very painful in the shutdown before either side is willing to cave or compromise. 404-872-0750-1800, WSB Talk. Peter in Atlanta, you're next. Hi, Eric. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, Quick question regarding a potential uh, SCOTUS appointment. Given the circus that Democrats made out of the Kavanaugh hearings, and my understanding that hearings are not necessarily required, why hold them at all? Well, so hearings are not constitutionally required, but the Senate requires them now. They didn't have those hearings until... I want to say it was the 1960s. It might have been the late 50s, but I think it was the the early 60s 
that the, um, the with starting with one of John F. Kennedy's nominees, that they started having Supreme Court confirmation hearings in the Senate. Uh, the Senate now expects them. So even though they're not constitutionally required, uh, it is a requirement to get the confirmation of the Senate, and the Senate is not going to confirm anyone without a confirmation hearing. So that's that's why they got to do it. There's there's really no way around it. If the Senate Judiciary Committee, where these nominees come through, insists on it. And by the way, uh, Lindsey Graham is now the chair of the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee, and he is insistent on these hearings. He's not going to allow, nor will the majority of the members allow, a nominee to pass through the committee without actually having a public hearing. So they've got to do it that way. Speaking of public hearings, I said earlier the Senate, it's the House. Michael Cohen will appear before the House of Representatives next month um, and answer questions from House Democrats. The House Democrats in charge of the committee hearing are saying this is to give everyone a chance to assess the credibility of Michael Cohen. Really what it means is it's a chance for them to undermine the president. This is the beginning of the investigation into the president by House Democrats. Michael Cohen willing to come before the House and answer their questions about his relationship with the president. Now, there's something interesting here we need to pay attention to. The Cohen team has been very, very clear that they would not talk publicly in any way that could jeopardize the Mueller investigation. And they have refused to talk publicly in the past, including telling the House and the Senate that if Cohen was to talk to them, it would have to be behind closed doors because he did not want to interfere with the Mueller investigation or the Mueller investi- investigation would have to sign off on the on his hearings. Well, the Mueller investigation hasn't signed off as far as I know and as far as being reported on his testimony before the House, which suggests the Mueller investigation is beginning to close down, to wind down. In fact, the Mueller team has signaled to the House and the Senate that they're pretty much fair game to pursue any avenue of investigation now because the Mueller team has closed those uh, doors. They've, they've taken care of it, which is a pretty big red flag that the investigation is winding down. We do have the Manafort situation, and I've got to say, I wonder if people have this wrong. Paul Manafort has now acknowledged that he shared Trump campaign polling with a Russian intelligence operative while outside of the country. And a lot of Democrats are saying this is proof, finally, we have proof, that the president's campaign colluded with the Russians. I wonder if we're looking at this wrong. Paul Manafort is a terrible person. Paul Manafort has worked for a series of Russian autocrats who were friends with Vladimir Putin. He has worked for a lot of Russian allies in other countries trying to undermine democratic processes with totalitarian leaders. He's not a good guy. And I wonder, one of the things that I know about Cohen, and they're not called Manafort, and that others have said about Manafort, is that over the years, he has largely been marginalized inside American politics. The reason Paul Manafort has worked with these people in other countries is because no one in this country would hire him. So I wonder if the way to look at this is to actually consider, was Manafort telling the Russians, just hang on, I've got a guy And this guy may get elected, and so be patient with me. I'm making inroads into the United States. In other words, it wasn't Trump that was colluding or conspiring with the Russians. It was Manafort without Trump's knowledge. Now, everyone presumes that Trump would know, but would he really? Would Manafort tell him? 
I don't know that he would. I mean, people have gotten mad at me for pointing this out. I, I do have to acknowledge um, that. Oh, you're, you said you might vote for Trump in 2020. Now you're just trying to be on the team. Now, I, look, I think it's a legitimate point. Manafort's not a good guy. Uh, it, it is conceivable to me that Manafort was trying to tell the Russians, I got a guy, I want you to help this guy, without that guy knowing. We, we don't know the extent of the collusion. I'm still of the opinion that Donald Trump is did not collude with Russians knowingly. He had people around him who I think did. And I think that uh, they're going to jail. I think that Mueller is going to expose them. But I think a lot of the people who are around the president consider the president not a very bright person and they were going to do these things and just keep the president out of it and, and see what they could do. But again, I think it's very, very, very important for everyone to remember that no one, including the president and his children, thought he was going to win. Everyone thought they wanted to score points against Hillary Clinton, that they weren't actually going to win this thing. And if you keep that in mind, when they were talking to the Russians, the perspective from all of them was that they weren't going to win. On the night of the election, the Trump team didn't think they were going to win. I, I've talked to, to some of the Secret Service folks who were involved. The Trump campaign, they were shocked when extra Secret Service agents showed up. Asking why they were there. They had come from the Hillary team. Why they were there. And, and the Secret Service agent had to explain that. We expect you to be the winner. We're, we're boosting security. And the Trump team was stunned. Uh, uh, I, I think that there are a lot of people the president hired who were bad people. And those bad people bungled a lot of things. And they have needlessly caused the president to be dragged into an investigation. But I've never thought the president himself colluded with the Russians. Uh, the people who hate the president think he would have won at all costs. Yeah, I can see some of the people around him doing that. But I don't actually see him doing that. And that's a really big difference. It's 56 after the hour. The phone number 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. To the phones we go. Mike from Smyrna, you're next. Welcome. Hey, Eric. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Hey, good. Um, I just wanted to just comment because, you know, after talking with, you know, a lot of different people, I would look at this and say that, when you look back at uh, 2016, actually 15, uh, Corey Lewandowski was running the whole campaign, and the, he couldn't go any farther. So he looked at Manafort, and Manafort basically was somebody was uh, that they they could get some access. But I don't think that they understood what was going on with Manafort's life. Yeah, and I don't so think they I did either. I don't think they understood the background of Manafort. They basically got Manafort in without realizing what was in his background. Exactly. Yeah, I, Manafort was a bad guy, and all they knew is he had worked for Bush, and he worked for Reagan, and he lived in uh, Trump Tower. They they did not know that he worked for Ukrainian and Russian oligarchs and tyrants. I, I, I don't think they did. And so I, I don't think that anyone's going to be able to pr uh, prove active collusion on this front by the president, although we could be surprised. We'll find out when the Mueller investigation goes. So one reason why House Democratic leaders are pushing for a slow walk on all this stuff, they really, 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 really want to wait for the Mueller 
report to drop before House Democrats pursue the president aggressively because uh, there may not be anything there directly tying to the president. We'll see. Uh, when we come back, I want to shift gears. Uh, a report is coming out that uh, the state needs to stick with electronic voting machines that have a paper receipt as opposed to going back to a paper ballot. I want to discuss this and take your reaction. Should the state just go to paper ballots? They would certainly be cheaper. We'll discuss this and Jim Acosta cell phoning on the border and Andrew Cuomo signaling he wants to run for president of the United States. Kamala Harris is expected to announce soon as well. It is nine after the hour. I am Eric Erickson. This is Atlanta's Evening News. The phone number 404-872-0750-1800. WSB Talk. Uh, Lindsey Graham out uh, just a short time ago saying that it's time for President Trump to use the emergency powers to build his wall. And he hopes it works, but he knows it's not going to work. This is the thing. Uh, the president's advisors think it's a terrible idea because of the precedent it sets, but more importantly, they know it's not going to work. They know federal judges will stop him from being able to use it. Lindsey Graham, however, doesn't believe that it's possible to get the Democrats to cave, and so he's essentially urging the president to cave without saying that. Deeply, deeply unfortunate that we've come to this point. Uh, I think that the Republicans have failed at an opportunity to campaign, particularly against the new freshman Democrats in their districts on this issue. Uh, and we're not going to get a wall now um, if Lindsey Graham's advice holds. Uh, it's just it's not going to happen. And it will set a dangerous precedent for future Democratic presidents to be able to abuse. Uh, now, I want to move on to other things, though. The phone number is 404-872-0750, wsb talk I'm a commission has been set up to determine uh, future ballots in Georgia, whether they should be electronic or paper. A great many people who spoke on the issue, uh, constituents who spoke on the issue, want a return to paper ballots, the balloting system we had before the 2000 election. Uh, some history here, just so you have it. In the year 2000, George W. Bush beat Al Gore, winning the Electoral College and losing the popular vote. He won Florida by 500-some-odd votes. Uh, there was a huge issue in Florida because Florida had designed a butterfly ballot, and the butterfly ballot means it, it folded open like butterflies' wings and your choices stretched across the wings, and some people mis, uh, uh, misconstrued the ballot and punched out the roll holes, and it was mostly senior citizens who were confused. They had what were called hanging chads. You pushed out the little piece of paper to form a hole. Uh, that little piece of paper was called the chad, and sometimes people didn't push all the way through or they started 
started to push. You could see where they had applied pressure, but it disconnected. And then something else was, was pushed out. And the question was, did this person intend to vote or not? And was the Chad hanging enough? If the Chad was hanging from two corners, it was presumed to have been a vote. If it was hanging from one corner, it was presumed to not be a vote. There were different standards for how you would count. And ironically, a, a consortium put together by USA Today showed that if the Al Gore standard was used, um, he would have lost. If the George W. Bush standard was used, he would have lost. Ultimately, the Supreme Court said that the Florida Supreme Court couldn't keep changing the rules as they were doing trying to help Al Gore. The uh, Democrats on the Florida Supreme Court were trying to help Al Gore and, and kept uh, changing the rules and the Supreme Court ruled they had to cut it out. And, of course, the Democrats have been blaming uh, the Supreme Court for handing George W. Bush the win ever since. And all their point was, by the way, it was not a 5-4 to four decision there. Stephen Breyer joined with the majority to say the Florida Supreme Court had to stop changing the rules mid-course. That led states across the nation to decide, you know what, maybe people are too stupid to use paper ballots after 200 years. Maybe we should put them in front of screens and let them touch the name on the screen, which has led to its own problems because there is no foolproof voting system when so many people are stupid. But now we're back to whether or not we should have paper ballots or electronic ballots in Georgia. A commission has ruled 13 to 3 to endorse touch screens with ballot printers. So, I, you know, the elections in Georgia are staffed by mostly volunteers, mostly senior citizens. Um, to the extent they're paid, they're paid a nominal amount of money. It's harder and harder these days to find people willing to give up their day to sit and man the polls. And I think that the state of Georgia adds an unfortunate amount of complication to the voting system if they use a touchscreen that also includes a printer. The reason I say this is, have you ever been to a restaurant or grocery store when the roll of paper runs out? There are undoubtedly people who work in the grocery stores and the restaurants who are able to quickly refill the roll or the ink in the machine and print them out, get it going. But very frequently you will encounter people who work in the restaurants and the grocery stores who they struggle to change the paper rolls. Or the ribbon. I mean, I, I, I suppose if it's thermal, you wouldn't have to worry about it. But there are people who struggle to change the, the, the paper rolls. And those are people who work in the stores and do it all the time. I think you're asking a lot of the people who man the polls to have to worry about changing the rolls of paper to print the receipts. And by the way, we wouldn't even be counting the, the paper receipts. Um, essentially people would be able to get the receipt to prove that they voted. They'd be able to look and make sure it lined up to what they put on the screen and we would still be doing the electronic voting. The, here's another thing. Doing the electronic voting machines would cost a hundred million dollars. Going back to the paper Scantron ballots that worked just fine until the year 2000 would only cost $30 million. Long-term, it seems to be cheaper to do the paper ballots. And, you know, Great Britain and a lot of other countries do paper ballots to this day. 
I mean, it, it seems one of the issues here is that uh, Democrats have decided that they will just complain about everything until they win, including the ballot, the way the ballot's formed, all of that. But th- the practical reality of the situation is this. People are stupid. You may not like that I'm that blunt with this. Oh, you say you're a Christian and you're insulting. People are stupid. And if you're reacting that way, you're one of them. People are stupid. There is no foolproof way, none, to cast a vote. Paper balloting, however, is way cheaper than electronic balloting. Now, here's the other thing. People will say, well, the electronic ballots are faster. Are they really I mean, when you look at Fulton County, Georgia, are they really quicker to count? Now, you could argue that it's harder to commit fraud on the voting machines, but this is one of the Democratic arguments is that it's so easy because these machines can be hacked, which I think is largely nonsense. I'm old enough to remember when I was a young lawyer starting in Georgia, when even before that, when I was in college and the college Republicans in a law school and, and one of the ballot security people in the state, I would go watch polls and stuff and, and the, the dubious handling of ballots. And there was inevitably paper ballots. Uh, Republicans in Fulton County would watch dump trucks and and trash trucks mysteriously pull in front of their cars as they were following the paper ballots on the way to the on the way to the boards of elections. I, I I think paper ballots. There's a lot of fraud involved there, but there is you can arguably also commit fraud with electronic ballots. What I do know is that paper ballots are way cheaper and way less of a hassle and way less complicated for volunteers who only really participate in elections every other year to have demand. And I think we probably ought to reconsider going back to the Scantron machines that we used to have and scan the ballots instead of doing these newfangled voting machines uh, that print these out. And let's also keep in mind that the most outspoken proponents of the newfangled electronic voting machines that print out paper receipts happen to be lobbyists who would love for the state to spend money on that stuff. You know, when I do a sponsorship ad for the podcast, they send me a script that I can read from. I don't have to even read that script for Quip. Quip is my electric toothbrush, and it has been for over two years, and I love it. I ordered it myself uh, well before they were a sponsor of this or even my radio show because I kept seeing the ads on Instagram, and I was looking for a good electric toothbrush. And so many electric toothbrushes, if you buy them, the, the toothbrush heads are so big you can't get them to the back of your mouth to brush, and they come with a big recharger you got to carry with you. The Quip does not have either of those problems. It is designed by designers with dentists, and it shows. It fits in your mouth comfortably. And it works on a AAA battery, so you don't have to carry a big charger with you. And there's a subscription brush head. So when your brush head wears out for just five bucks every three months, you get a new brush head and it comes in an envelope that has a new battery in it. So you just see, keep the cycle going. It is fantastic. It is accepted by the American Dental Association. In fact, it's one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the ADA. They're backed by over 25,000 dental professionals. My own dentist has commented to me how good my teeth have looked over the last couple of years. I've been going through uh, one of those Invisalign braces processes as well and quit makes it easy and great to get a good good clean teeth so now quip starts at 25 dollars. if you go to getquip.com slash eric e-r-i-c-k right now you get your first refill pack for free at getquip.com slash eric it is free your first refill pack so go to g-e-t-q-u-i-p.com slash eric that's getquip.com slash eric 
It is 26 after the hour. Eric Erickson here. News 95.5 AM 750 WSB. The phone number 404-872-0750. 1-800-WSB-TALK. Uh, Elman in Douglasville, you're going to be up next. Welcome. Hey, how you doing today, sir? Good. How are you? Doing very well. Thanks for asking. Uh, basically, I'm a penny pincher, man, and I don't agree uh, that we should move on to anything fancy and high tech and expensive the bottom line if people want to have that receipt i feel like all you have to do is have a scantron type system that basically has the same kind of receipt you get when you get a ticket from a police officer you get your little yellow slip you have your receipt without your printer yeah i i'm i really yeah do it a lot like carbon copy almost uh, yes yes and, sir I, I think paper ballots are the way to go because they're cheaper. Um, and, you know, part of what, what one of the missing aspects of this is that the counties foot the bill. And we got a lot of poor counties in the state of Georgia. I mean, we're having all of these conversations about rural parts of Georgia and trying to, to bring people into these parts of the state and rebuild parts of the state. They can't afford the machines. The paper ballots would be easier to use. And, Honestly, they worked fine. They worked fine in 2000. They were when you get an absentee ballot in the state of Georgia by and large, guess what? You fill these out and and I got to tell you, uh I've had several people reach out to me on Twitter and elsewhere that sometimes they come back so mangled it's hard to tell what the person's voting. Um but a a scantron something like that it just seems to me that if we have an electronic voting machine and we're also trying to get these people who run the polls, who are largely volunteer senior citizens, to be worried about changing paper rolls. It's just it adds a whole lot of complexity to a system when you're dealing with a bunch of people. And whether you're smart or not, the reality is you only vote every other year. It takes five, ten minutes to do, and so it's not something that's commonly done. And that makes it even more difficult. I think we probably need to not go along with a majority of this commission and reconsider it, if only as a cost-saving measure. More on this in your calls when we come back. It's 39 after the hour. Eric Erickson here. We're going to keep taking your phone calls. I I did have a a great, great, great... uh, direct message on twitter from a listener who pointed out that if she can change a roll of toilet paper she could probably change one of these voting ballot rolls and it's a fair point Um, but yeah it's also these machines are expensive compared to the paper ballots um but you you know jerry who's called in uh in the past uh, look here you are i i see you You were just direct messaging me let's go to jerry here tell your story jerry uh, hi, Eric. It's nice to talk to you. Back in the day, uh, I was a poll watcher up here in Cobb County, and, they, and the Scantron machines work real well until they don't. You know, you, those things fly through at an amazing rate of speed, and then one then one ballot will jam it up, like kind of like a copier. And, you, and you're going in, and you're trying to find the, uh, the, the jammed ballot, and this one lady had this box. Uh, where she would come over and open up the machine. This old lady would come open the machine and just kind of take the ballot that was crumpled up and un- almost unrecognizable and fold it back out and try to identify all the numbers that were punched and stuff. And once they got the jam cleared, you know, I mean, everything stopped. 
everything stopped. And then once they got the jam cleared, she'd load, uh, you know, the hundreds and the hundreds of ballots back in the stack and turn that machine on and flip them right through it in until it jammed again. So let me tell you, (laughs) sometimes it's an exciting thing. I mean, when that that sucker jams, you just see that lady come over there and just spread it out like it's a piece of lace and try to find who, you know, what candidates this person voted for. So it's a a scary thing. But, you know, it's it's interesting to go back uh, to think that we could go back to that. Yeah, so you've done that in the past, and we're all familiar with the electronic voting machines. I personally like the electronic machines we have now, and you don't have to worry about the paper receipt. Uh, I think the paper receipt just adds an extra cost to it. Uh, I'm just I'm stunned by the number of people who think that the electronic ballots are. I have never found the electronic ballots to be difficult to vote on. It's not foolproof. The electronic ballots aren't foolproof. Neither the scantrons, but I mean. You know, with elections and vote counting, you know, it is it is 99.9% safe and secure until it's not. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, you you listen, I'm from Louisiana. I know about ballot stuffing <laughs> and the like. <laughs> well, you know, Jerry, thanks very much for the phone call. In Louisiana, we had the the, the old machines. This is a, a famous Huey Long trick from back in the day, the old governor of Louisiana. Um, we had the, the machines in Louisiana when I first, uh, when I turned 18, they were still using them and they're the machines where you go in and you pull the, the, the little chain and it closes the curtain and on the machine is based on knobs and the knobs have the names of people. And so you, you flip a little dial towards the name that you want, or you you roll to, to where the name is and, and align everything. The problem is that Huey Long was notorious for changing the diameters of the knobs, so you were actually casting votes for the Democrat instead of the Republican uh, back in the day in Louisiana. Voter fraud would ramp it back then. And, you know, again, it's one of those issues where uh, voting is only as good as the integrity of the people who are doing it. If you want to steal the election, I mean, look at Chicago, uh, look at Louisiana, you're going to there's going to be hanky panky with the elections. If the margin is wide, it's harder to cheat which is why you want to build up. I'm, I like the electronic voting machines because in theory, you should be able to count a whole lot quicker. If the machines go down, if the power goes out, all these, uh, you got issues either way. Um, one of the arguments in favor of a paper ballot, however, is that if lightning strikes and takes out the machines, the data is not going to be erased off the Scantron machine, and that's a valid argument. A friend of mine just texted me and said her mom has really bad arthritis and likes the touchscreens because she doesn't have to hold a pin and fill in a bubble. Um, yeah, yeah. Nobody's going to be completely happy with whatever system we use. Let's go back to the phone. Shirley in Woodstock, you're up next. Welcome. Hey, Eric. I went with my dad in Tallahassee. Got him to use a touch screen versus punching the holes. Thought it was the best thing since sliced bread. Wondered why everybody didn't use an electronic screen. The another thing is, um, I know you know Scott Turner. Mm-hmm. Reach out to him. He was involved in a study a few months ago at Georgia Tech about whether or not the electronic machines can be um, hacked or anything. Spend 15 minutes with him, and he can fully educate educate you about that study. It's quite enlightening. And thank, that's all I got. Thank you very much, Shirley. I appreciate it very much. I will definitely reach out to Scott on that. Chris in Atlanta, you're next. Welcome. Hi, Eric. Uh, long-time listener. I uh, love your show. Thank you. 
I, I agree with you that that people are stupid. Um, but I think what maybe we need to do is we need to to work on keeping the really really stupid people from voting in the first place. I mean, if you're too stupid to cast a ballot properly, maybe you shouldn't be voting to start with. Well, you know, I didn't agree with you, but we, we are prohibited from poll tests and poll taxes because of what happened in the South uh, years ago. Um, but, you know, maybe what we could do is we could all send out a flyer to people and tell them that uh, the election is actually the day after Christmas. And if they're so stupid they fall for that, well, then point taken. <laughs> We've we, we weeded out the vote pool. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, honestly, we're, we are dealing with the situation where we're trying to foolproof a system that can't be foolproof. Paper ballots have problems. Electronic ballots have problems. Uh, my issue is uh, what's the best way to preserve the integrity of the election? I think that's the paper ballots come out on tops. Uh, and what's the way to fastest get to the point where we can declare the winner and, and electronic ballots come out on top? There's another issue here is uh, uh, recounts. And electronic balloting tends to do a better job of recounting uh, where the original total and, and the recounted total tend to be usually line up. It's very rare that a recount uh, upends an election. In fact, I think there have only been 10 cases where electronic balloting in the last decade have, upon a manual recount, changed the vote. And that's all based on the absentee ballots uh, coming in that are on Scantron. Um, there's not an easy answer here. I just My concern is the cost of electronic machines where you're also printing out the ballots. If the electronic machines, essentially what I think, if we'd go the electronic machine route, let a voter print out the receipt and make sure that it's right. And if it is, go on their way. And if it's not, um, have it with a little scan code at the bottom where they can scan it and pull back up their ballot and let them fix it. Um, but I just, I, I like electronic balloting, but you add all these extra components and paper and everything else, the cost just goes up and up and up and you're burdening the volunteers who are the poll workers as well. And that I think is a problem. Hey folks, real quick, um, Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia is going to speak at the resurgent gathering. It's going to be in Atlanta in August. If you want to come, uh, text the word Atlanta to three, four, five, three, four, five, text the word Atlanta to three, four, five, three, four, five, uh, Phil and Marietta, you're going to be the last caller. We got less than a minute, but I wanted to get to you if I could. I appreciate that. I serve on one of the local board of elections and our elections director pointed out some good things. One thing is that the upfront cost of the state is supposedly going to be less if you use paper ballots rather than have these extra machines. However, the ongoing cost to the counties is much higher because if you pre-print them, as is now required for every election, when you had a primary, you would have to be printing 12 million ballots. Oh, that's a good not point. Even be using half of them. I, I got to let you go there, but that's an excellent point. Yeah, the long-term cost. I hadn't thought about that one, Phil. Thanks for calling in.